It is great to be here, it really is. Um, I was saying to um, Julie just a while ago, um, being part of Bible Society is fantastic, but I'm very much looking forward to coming home both to the Uniting Church and uh, to Queensland within the next couple of years. So, Well, let's get straight into the passage uh, where Paul is actually very direct that we are to be imitators of God. What a startling admonition and a declaration. But beware, this is not to say that we are to be gods. The word imitators come from a Greek word that means to mimic. To mimic is to follow the pattern or the example of God, to be God-like, but not at all to think of ourselves as gods, as is our want in this world, of course, to follow our own desires, to have no restrictions, to ignore proper authority or to do whatever we want. Does that sound like something you might have been hearing out of a royal commission lately? Rather, the instruction to Christians to be godlike is to be like the one true God, to point to a standard beyond which there is no other and to reflect him in our humanity. Now, as followers or disciples of Jesus, we understand that we are to be like Jesus. We understand that although we'll never attain the standard that Jesus set, that it is possible to imitate him and to grow more like him. But imitating God the Father seems to be another thing altogether. How can it be even possible to imitate the God of the entire universe? The God who is sovereign, majestic, almighty, holy, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal. The one who has always been, always will be, and who is dependent on and accountable to no one. Now, each of these attributes sets God apart from us and delineates ways in which we cannot and will never be like him. So is there any point in trying to intim uh, in, uh, imitate him then? Isn't there a vastness that we can never cross? Well, no, because we understand that for all the ways that we will never be able to imitate God, there are other ways that we can there are things that we ought to imitate and cultivate, things like justice, mercy, wisdom, faithfulness, love, compassion, forgiveness. We may be humbled, in fact, we should be humbled by God's perfection in these things, but nonetheless, we are to imitate God as dearly loved children. Now, a few years ago, my young adult daughter posted an Instagram photo and message that totally warmed my heart. It was a picture of me preaching at New Life, and it said, when I grow up, please let me be like at Melissa Lipset. It brought me such joy and pride to know that Jess wanted to imitate me, particularly the faithfulness that I'd tried to demonstrate in my life. So how much more so then must God be filled with love and pride for us when our lives imitate him and his love? But we have a tendency to forget who and whose we are. And sadly, our world is full of examples of behaviour that isn't befitting of our identity as beloved children of God. Now, I imagine many of you have seen the movie Blood Diamonds that's set amongst the turmoil of the Sierra Leone Civil War. 
I'm sure you remember the moving scene when Dia, just a young boy who's previously been kidnapped and forced into being a child soldier, turns a gun on his father Solomon. And Solomon looks up and he sees Dia pointing the gun at him, still just a young boy really. And he says, Dia, what are you doing? Look at me, what are you doing? You are Dia Vandy of the proud Mende tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister Neander and the new baby. Tears stream down the father's cheeks and he continues, The cows wait for you. And Babu, the wild dog who minds no one but you. Now tears are streaming down Dia's cheeks as well and Solomon continues, I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you and you will come home and be my son again. Dia has forgotten his identity and as a result his behaviour is not befitting of who and whose he is. And the very same thing happens when beloved children called to be imitators of their heavenly father forget their identity in Christ. So having reminded us of who and whose we are, Paul gives us instructions on how we're to imitate God. And essentially he says we're to walk. Now walking is such a practical thing. It gets us from where we are to where we want to be, or it certainly did in biblical days, less so today of course, but it's still a good metaphor as we acknowledge who we are and who we're called to be. And the admonition from the passage is to walk in love, to walk in light, to walk in wisdom and to walk in gratitude, four ways of walking. Now if you've got your Bibles or your phone in front of you, you'll notice that the call to imitate God in this first verse of chapter 5 directly ties it to the previous chapter and that verses 1 and 2 are actually part of the preceding verses so that the passage correctly reads, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God therefore as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So forget all the things that this world thinks make you godlike. True godliness is to simply but profoundly imitate his love, to walk in the way of love, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave us just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. Now God's love is a particular type of love. It's not sentimental, neither is it romantic. Rather, the agape love of God is based on a very distinct decision to be primarily concerned with the well-being of the beloved, regardless of their condition and irrespective of their response. That then becomes the challenge of the Christian lifestyle, to live a life of love that is modelled on the love of God for us. Now human love tends to love the lovely, the loving and the lovable, but divine love loves the unloving, the unlovable and the unlovely. There's the difference. And as Christians, we believe this. And because we believe this, we take this challenge very seriously. 
Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Now, this is a sacrificial lifestyle, and it's deeply pleasing to God. So how is our world doing with love and forgiveness and sacrificial giving? How is it sitting in your world right now? now I'm particularly challenged by the, perhaps the last of these as I recognise the fact that Jesus didn't just give up things. He gave up himself. Philippians reminds me that Jesus who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now we tend to neglect the cost of Christ's love. We're so familiar with it that it doesn't move us as it should. And arguably the greatest display of reverence for sacrifice by the average Aussie is on Anzac Day when the words from John's Gospel are read with great dignity and gravitas, greater love hath no man. But as theologian Jeff Thompson noted recently, those words have got nothing whatsoever to do with war, which of course is overlooked by those who use them in this manner, generally not maliciously of course, but with some degree of ignorance. Chuck Colson, though, tells the true story of prisoners made to do hard labour during the Second World War. Each had a shovel and they would dig all day under shocking conditions and then each evening they were lined up and their shovels were counted. And one evening, 20 prisoners lined up, but the guard only counted 19 shovels. And, of course, he was enraged and demanded to know who hadn't returned their shovel. And no one responded. So the guard took out his gun and threatened to kill five men if the guilty prisoner didn't step forward. And after a moment of very tense silence, a 19-year-old soldier stepped forward with his head bowed. And without a moment's hesitation, the guard grabbed him and shot him in the head and then challenged the remaining men to be more careful than their friend had been. And afterwards, of course, the men counted the shovels again and there were 20. The guard had miscounted and a boy had given his life for his friends. Now many of us have a strong reaction to stories like this. We're amazed and humbled by the costly love that this young man chose to demonstrate, to choose death so that others might live. And so we should feel this way. But how much greater was Christ's giving love? Not just for his friends, of course, but for his enemies. We so often take it for granted. We've heard of the sacrifice so often it fails to impact us. But it should change everything so that our lives look like that described in Galatians. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So walking in love how to live, then leads in the passage to walking in light, how not to live. There are lots of do nots in this part of the passage and none of them are unexpected, but the standard is very high. But the first thing to recognise is what actually constitutes the light, because no matter how well you and I live, we are not the light. But a, light, a life lived in the light has many characteristics. Paul names just three. All goodness, 
all righteousness, which means to conform to a divine standard, and all truth. So the Bible talks a lot about light and darkness, and very often when it's talking about light, it's talking about truth. And very often when it's talking about darkness, it's talking about error. And scripture also teaches us that when God begins to shine his truth into our lives, it's not unlike the morning sun dissipating the mist and dispersing the darkness. And the idea that our lives should reflect the light of Christ since we have received the life of Christ is a familiar theme in the New Testament. Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your, your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So let me ask again, how is our world doing with radiating light? with goodness, justice, truth and integrity. After the last shocking story of the Royal Commission had been told and the report detailing oceans of human suffering and institutional complicity had been handed down, Frank Brennan, the Catholic priest and commentator, wrote this, As a Catholic priest, I am still feeling perplexed. My church, like all institutions caring for children, contain child abusers. My church, more than many other institutions caring for children, failed to weed out those abusers and even harboured them. Our world has such difficulty living in the light. And perhaps that's understandable when you haven't received the life of Christ. How can you reflect what you don't have? How can you reflect what you don't know? But it's much more difficult to understand or to comprehend such behaviour perpetrated by those who confess Christ. And the thing that seems to be missing in these and other abhorrent behaviours is true regeneration. The evidence suggests that dictating mere moral standards doesn't actually change us and that while not everybody understands Christian morality, all people tend to have a sense of knowing that they should behave better than they actually do. So the problem isn't with the standard, the problem is with ourselves. And the standard of living that Paul calls us to involves three things. It involves what we are, what we believe, and how we behave. And John Stott puts it this way. He says the theme of chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians is the integration of Christian experience, what we are, Christian theology, what we believe, and Christian ethics, how we behave. They emphasise that being, thought and action belong together and must never be separated. For what we are governs what we believe and how we think determines how we behave. Stott then says, Holiness is not a condition into which we drift, but rather an active working out of what has already been worked into us as the people of God, redeemed by Christ. Now a couple of quick notes about the behaviours that Paul names as being intolerable. Sexual immorality, impurity, greed, foolish talk, obscenity and coarse language or joking. 
Now, recently I heard, I, think, I don't think that's normal joking, that's coarse joking, isn't it? Recently I heard Tim Costello warn a group of church leaders that the secular world was sick to death of hearing them talk about sex. And I reckon he's right. And it's time we took a leaf out of Paul's book and had a more balanced conversation about behaviour. Paul doesn't just single out people who have particular attitudes towards sex. He puts a greedy person in the same category as the immoral and the impure. And why does he do that? Well, he, we have a clue um, by, by reading that gre the greedy person is an idolater. The Greek idea of greed is a continual desire and an insatiable appetite for more. So are there people who are never, ever satisfied, who have a continual obsessive demand for more? Well, yes, there are. And their problem is, is that they're not finding their satisfaction in the creator. So they're trying to find it in the created. The created now becomes the object of their worship rather than the creator. And that's the ultimate insult to God. It says, God, I don't find you satisfactory. I don't, find you're all, I don't find you to be all that you're cracked up to be. And I don't want you to be the God of my life. But thanks for all the stuff you've made for me. Now get out of my way. Let me ignore you and let me worship what you've made instead. So surely greed is one of the greatest sins of our time. And not many of us immune from that one. And of course, the question is, can we serve both God and money? Well, perhaps, but Matthew indicates not when he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And I wonder if this is what Paul had in mind when he wrote Mark 10. Remember the story of the guy who comes to Jesus and asks the question, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at his designer clothes and his expensive watch perhaps and says, well, here's what you have to do. Sell everything that you have. Give the money to the poor. Then come and follow me. Now, nowhere else in scripture does Jesus make these kinds of demand of anyone who asks about following him. And in this case, Jesus was perceptive enough to get right to the root of what mattered most in this man's world. And he says, friend, you have to choose. Is it going to be all that stuff or is it going to be me? Jesus will, as they say, be Lord of all or not Lord at all. And sadly, the young man turns and walks away. Let's move on. When Paul exhorts us to live or walk wisely, he's very practical with instructions. Essentially, he says, be careful how you walk. And I think about how easy it is to go along with the influences that are around us rather than be vigilant or cautious about the way we think and act. Many of us live our lives on the basis of what we want, where the dominant theme becomes, I do what I want, and based on what I want and what I don't want, I will now craft my own lifestyle. But the scriptures tell us that there's a different way to create a lifestyle that's based on God's will. And scripture says that God's will is good and perfect and acceptable. But to be honest, people like me underline it in our Bibles and we doubt it. Sometimes even when we're living totally devoted to being followers of Jesus, our circumstances feel anything but good and perfect and acceptable. 
So I think it's natural to be resistant to the idea of living according to God's will and not my own. And yet, as Christ followers, that's what we're called to do, to ask ourselves what it might mean to abandon ourselves to God's will. And experience tells me that attempting to manipulate God's will to fit what I want doesn't work very well. My best advice is to choose to trust in God's will in the great hope that as you do that, you begin to discover his will becomes what you actually want. And I confess that I'm still a work in progress in this regard and the hardest part of that equation for me has always been the trust part. I want to talk about trust a little more, but I'm going to do it as part of my last remark. So for the moment, let's just move on to walking in gratitude, the last of our ways to walk. Verses 18 and 19 lead us into this idea of walking in gratitude. But a quick um, word about verse 18 that sets it up. Paul tells us that the Christian lifestyle is one that is filled by the Spirit of God. Now, when a person is drunk, they are captivated and motivated by alcohol. When a person is filled by the Spirit, they're captivated and motivated by that. Now, most of us don't ever plan to get drunk. For a variety of reasons, that's not likely to be considered acceptable to us. But for some strange reason, we don't worry too much about being filled with the Spirit. In fact, some of us are frightened to be filled with the Spirit. Some of us are not even sure what that might mean. And tragically, some of our denominations think the Spirit has ceased to exist. So four quick important points about being filled with the Spirit. One, it's a command, not a suggestion. It's an urgent imperative, and the commanding nature indicates that I have a role to play in it. Being filled is not going to happen by magic or osmosis or gold dust coming from the air conditioners. I have to play my part. Having said that, the original structure also indicates that there's an element of passivity. That is, I'm not the one doing the filling. I have to be filled. The CEV translation says, let the spirit fill your life indicating that we have to open ourselves up with faith and trust, there's that word again, and believe that God's Spirit can and will fill us. Three, it's hard to tell from our English translation, but the original Greek here um, is plural. The command is plural. So it's not just for some. The Spirit is not just for some. The Spirit is for all. And lastly, the command is in the present tense, literally keep on being filled. So just as we have a moment-by-moment dependence on the air we breathe, so too this indicates that God wants us to have a moment-by-moment dependence on his spiritual breath. So having been filled and filled and filled again, Paul says that four things will be evident in us, speaking and singing, and thanksgiving, and submitting. Note there that verses 19 to 21 are all dependent on verse 18, on being filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't have time to look at all of these, so let me just land on one, that if we're to be filled with the Spirit, we will, have, we will be grateful people, giving thanks to God for everything. Gratefulness is such an interesting state. Its therapeutic benefits are well known, but there's something more important about the concept of Christian gratitude 
um, than how it makes us feel. I think I've learned that Christian gratitude is not something we manufacture to make ourselves feel better, but a response that comes from an awareness of God's presence and goodness. And a couple of things about this were thanks to John Ortberg for his clarity. Gratitude involves a benefit, a benefactor, and a beneficiary. Benefits are always good. Benefactors are the ones who do good. And to be grateful, beneficiaries need to understand that the benefit they've received hasn't come by accident or randomly and is not something that is earned or deserved. Hence, Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things. Secondly, gratitude always involves a posture of humility. If I believed I'm owed or entitled to something, I won't be thankful for it. And just a side note here, of course, that the human race is naturally inclined to entitlement. And of course, the bigger the sense of entitlement, the smaller our sense of gratitude. James speaks to this. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Three, gratitude shouldn't be reliant on perfection. If I, wait for perfect, if I wait for perfect circumstances to be grateful, I will wait a very long time. John 16.33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace because, of course, in this world you will have trouble. And four, the opposite, opposite of gratitude in Bible stories tends to be called grumbling. And there's a fair bit of that that goes on. Um, and it's always indicated not as a psychological problem, but as a sinful one. Paul said this in Romans, For they that, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, and their thinking became futile. So what is it that stops us from being filled with the Spirit and seeing the outworking of that in our lives? The speaking, the singing, the thanksgiving and the submitting. Well, here's where I want to circle back to trust and confess that my problem is whether I trust God to be good and whether I trust in his spirit to be present. As I said before, trust has always been an issue for me. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but suffice to say that my early life was damaging in this regard. And I've always found the work of trust to be very difficult. Now, that trust is work is not disputed in Scripture. John 6.29 says, This is the work that God asks of you, that you believe in the one who he has sent. And, that, and you can extrapolate that out to that you, that you cleave to trust, that you rely on, that you have faith in his messenger. One of my favourite authors, Anne Voskamp, has this to say, That's my daily work, the work God asks of me, to trust the work I shirk, to trust in the sun, to trust in the wisdom of this moment, to trust in now, the work of trusting love. Now, some years ago, I reached a crossroads in my faith and I knew I had to learn to trust God. I believed, I absolutely did. Therefore, I had to learn to trust, to have what someone else has called a gut belief 
in the good touch of God toward me. And for me, that meant admitting the trust that I lacked, that if the worst happened, my God would be sufficient for me. It wasn't about trusting that the worst wouldn't happen. I knew it could. It was about trusting that God would be with me still, even then. It was about trusting that I would believe in the inherent goodness of God, no matter if good or bad happened to me. Now, reconciling this was a journey, a cliche but true. It certainly didn't happen in an instant, but eventually I chose to recognise this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You know, God has earned our trust with Jesus. Arms outstretched, flesh torn, wounds bleeding, our names on his lips. How will he not graciously give us all things? Well, surely he already has. Now, trust may not change my immediate circumstances or yours, but in reality, it changes everything. Trust enables me to rest in, to submit to and be filled with the Spirit. Trust and the Spirit enables me to keep on walking, to keep on walking in love, in light, in wisdom and in gratitude. So let me pray for us. Gracious God, thank you for Paul's words that we are to walk in love, in light, in wisdom and in gratitude. Sometimes this feels really tough to do. Sometimes speaking and singing, thanksgiving and submitting don't come easily. So strengthen us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Fill us and renew us each and every day, each and every moment to live for and with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.